Hello everyone, welcome back to the Film Score Podcast, and Happy New Year. My first guest of 2022 is the composer, orchestrator, and score supervisor, Catherine Joy. She's also the founder of the music production company, Joy Music House, and is the president of the Alliance for Women Film Composers, a group that I'm a big fan of, particularly because of the work that it does for women film composers across the world. You might know some of Catherine's work on projects like Wild Wild Country, Minari, and Homecoming. And Minari in particular has been one of my favorite scores of recent years, a score that was composed by Emil Mosseri. This is actually an interview that we conducted back in August of 2021, and it's just taken me a little while to get it out the door. So a few of the references we make, particularly, I think, to the Oscar nominees, are very dated. Of course, you can find more information about Catherine on social media or on her website, and I recommend checking out some of her music as well. She's done quite a few really good orchestral scores in particular. Now, I hope that you all have a great start to the new year, and I can promise there's a lot of great interviews on the way. But until then, sit back and I hope you enjoy. Catherine, I'm so glad you're able to join me today. How have you been doing? I'm really well, thanks. Thank Good. you for having me. Yeah, of course. So it looks like your 2020, 2021 have been pretty busy. A lot of documentary work, especially, coming through the door. Yeah, it actually, you know, when 2020 and everything hit, we just had a really busy period, um, especially with Joy Music House. So I was, it's weird to say this, but I was a little grateful for the, for the slowdown just to have a moment to breathe. But uh, actually work kept coming in. I think the biggest thing for 2020 was Potato Dreams of America, which is actually narrative. You know, it's a narrative feature film, but it's a, it's a biopic. It's based on the, the life of the director and writer Wes Hurley. And that's Potato Dreams of America. It was like one of the bigger things of 2020 that I took on. But I feel like everything I did in 2020, there was actually like more time to kind of musically explore mm. and just be more in the project. And also, it was especially a time where you kind of wanted to crawl into a project and stay there and forget about everything that was happening outside <laughs> your door for a little bit. So... Yeah, it's, you know, work has been steady, and I've been so incredibly grateful for that. That's great. And and I'm glad you mentioned Potato Dreams of America, because I was watching a few clips that you have up on, I think it's on your Vimeo channel. Yeah, that's right. The recording of that seemed kind of weird, because most of it is recording a socially distanced orchestra, but then there are a few instruments that are recorded remotely as well. Yeah. How did you make that all emerge together to sound fairly seamless? Absolutely. It's a great question. Well, you know, a lot of people were recording everything remotely during 2020. I know that like Lovecraft Country, for, for instance, with, uh, with Laura Cartman and Raphael Sadiq, they recorded like every single instrument separately and then merged them all together, which to me is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Uh, with Potato, it was a bit easier because Fames was still recording in Macedonia. Um, they took like, I think, a month off when they had their like hardest hitting lockdown. I was recording uh, the anime series Onyx Equinox with them on the day that Macedonia shut down. 
Wow. Like we were literally recording and they were like, the government just announced we're shut down. And I'm like, can we finish the session or do we have to stop right now? <laughs> it was crazy. So they shut down for a month, but then they were able to come back and, you know, it was a smaller ensemble, just 30 string players and everyone was masked, but they could still play together, which is wonderful. But then, yes, I did have my soloist recorded remotely. You know, it was challenging, of course, because everyone's in a different room. You know, my oboist was in her room and then my flutist was in her room and then I recorded some vocal elements to Potato and I was in my room but even when you're recording in, in normal situations there's definitely often different rooms involved or at least, at least different times of the day and I had been using especially these these soloists I've been using them for remote recording even before the the pandemic forced us into that situation and they have a really good setup in their rooms so, I mean, for the musicians that I worked with, they were already set up to remote record. I know a lot of other musicians had that that was, you know, something they had to learn during the pandemic is how to prep their room, how to use Pro Tools, invest in the software and the hardware necessary to get a really good sound. It's been such an adventure. But and then, of course, having a great engineer, Brian Taylor mixed um, Potato for me, and he really did a wonderful job. And he definitely has you know, wealth of experience of, of recording people in different rooms. But even if we did, like, for instance, Joy Music House score produced Homecoming season two, which was scored by Emil Masseri. For that, we recorded a lot of the stuff at East West, but we were in two different rooms. Often we're moving between studio one and two. And then we recorded some stuff in his studio in his ISO booth. And then we recorded some things, you know, like some musicians have, like especially pianists or whatever have it set up in their own studio. So I think engineers always have to have that talent to kind of glue everything together and just make it sound like you're all in the same <laughs> room together. But it was fun in that potato video to show everyone in the different spaces, show the orchestra with masks. It's not something we're going to forget very, very readily, but in, in 10 years time, it will definitely be some something to look back on and watch and have PTSD. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was really cool having that up there because I had heard some stories of various remote recordings. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was unavoidable if you're if you're doing that. But yeah, seeing those splice together was, yeah. I mean, it was a surprise for me because I'm looking at like, yeah, you see the, the 30 piece string ensemble there. I'm like, all right, this makes sense. And then it, it cuts to someone else who right. knows where at. I was like, <laughs> yeah. huh, caught me by surprise. I love it. So... The frustrating thing about your answer is it raised a whole bunch of things that I want to jump on at once, but I can't. <laughs> we got time. Yeah, exactly. We're going through it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the big things was you're doing a lot of documentary work, and I know that prior to now and prior to the last year or two, you've done quite a bit as well. Potatoes a feature, you're scoring an anime, you've worked in other shows as well. What would you say the difference in approach of scoring is between those two or those three or four different types of mediums are? Absolutely. Great question. I mean, I think the exciting thing about doc filmmaking these days is that they, one, it's it's really now accepted by the community at large, the audience. They're totally into docs, um, which is super exciting. And the documentary experience is becoming more and more cinematic so we're really starting to blur the lines between documentary and narrative. And I, th I think also documentary filmmaking has always been a very uh, guerrilla and kind of on the edge and 
exploratory. So, you know, it's a fun space to be in. Um, of course, you you often have the, the minimalist approach where, you you know, you have you're constantly working under dialogue or under t- talking heads. And so you kind of have that more documentary music style, which I really enjoy doing. I find it really, really fun to do. And so I have I have no problem when filmmakers specifically want that kind of music. But it's not it's not always the case. And I feel like, you know, more and more the approaches are becoming very similar between documentary and narrative. You know, there's more stuff to hit because they're getting more adventurous with their filmmaking style. A lot of documentary filmmakers now involve some sort of animation or they're, you know, really working on the just the cinematic shooting and just making sure that visually it's a lot more entertaining than just watching people talk. So at the end of the day, it's about storytelling. And I think the exciting thing for me about documentary storytelling, and it was the same with Potato because it was, it's literally like 99.99% true, um, everything that you see in the film, is that you're telling someone's story. And it's such an honor to, to score that. I take a lot of pleasure in that. And, you know, I try with documentary scoring to keep my game as, as stepped up and keep my musical approach as adventurous as I would in narrative. The latest project I just wrapped is called Women in the Front Seat, and it's about women motorbike riders. It was such a cool project to be a part of, partly because I'm a bit of a, a petrol head, as we say in Australia, or a gearhead, as you say here in the States. And so I was so psyched to do this film. And there was just, unlike a lot of documentaries, which are often just visually smaller, because you're shooting someone talking or you're shooting like in a room or the space that the camera is is in is smaller and the music has to complement that. You can't have like massive music in it when, when small things are happening on the screen. But with this motorbike documentary, there's a lot of visual shots. There's a lot of road shots, you know, and it's and there's, you know, big bikes with like big energy. And, and I was excited to really jump on that and you know, I, I watch a lot of car and bike stuff. Like, you know, I was a big fan of, of, of Top Gear, despite the narcissism and um, sexism <laughs> that's prevalent in that show. The car stuff and the bike stuff is awesome. And uh, the humor is great. And, you know, I also love like Long Way Around and Long Way Down with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman. And the Formula One series that's been on Netflix is just so much fun. And when you watch these, especially like higher produced car shows they're musically epic even if you watch like car commercials you know they can be absolutely beautiful and I wanted to bring that vibe to this documentary and I managed to apply for the Real Change um, Diversity Initiative grant which provides the music production money essentially that you can put into getting a live score and so again I got to do big strings with Fames and um, I got to record a brass trio along with solo cello, which was row, row, and on cello, and electric guitar with, with Casey Trello from the band Dark Rooms. You know, we were able to create this, like, cinematic experience, and, you know, I tried to just push it as far as I could, and making the music adventurous and, and bold to match what we were seeing on the screen. This is a very long way to say that I feel like, you know, every project you shouldn't the, the only thing that should matter is just serving that story. It doesn't matter whether it's, it's documentary or, or narrative. Just trying to find your edge and, and make it as 
exciting as possible as the picture will allow you to be. Of course, it's, it's all about the movie, right? It's all about the story. But really dancing outside your comfort zone and trying to bring something musically exciting to that, to that whole thing. When talking about the epic sound that you get in some of those, I mean, F1 recently had like Brian Tyler write their theme. And I mean, and that's someone who like what he does is just big blockbuster yeah. music. So it actually makes a lot of sense now as to like why they'd get a, a composer like him. But it's interesting, like winning the the grant and having that give you the opportunity to you know, hire more sections and develop that bigger sound. Without that, what would your approach have been instead? Would you still have tried to capture that bigger epic sound in a different way or would it have been a bit of a different approach? I w- it just would have been more in the box, which, you mm. know, samples allow you to, to do that more. It wouldn't have had the life, I think. For me also, I just live to be in the studio with real musicians because, I mean, that's where the learning and the growth happens as a composer. You know, I haven't written for a lot of brass um, recently, I've been score producing Untold for composer Brocker Way. It's a, a Netflix sports doc anthology that's being released every Tuesday. And Brocker has been doing a lot of brass stuff with it, like a really big brass section. And, and it's been like producing that for him has been a masterclass in brass work and, and really got me excited about those instruments. You know, I'm a string player you know, and, and singer by training. And so I'm very comfortable and and passionate about the world of strings. And I've always had a lot of woodwind players in my life. So, you know, I feel comfortable in that world. But brass was like a whole different thing. So that's why, you know, one reason why I was excited to go in that direction. I, you know, I think as a composer, you're always doing this this juggle with the budgets and, and seeing how far you can take the money. With a film like Potato, we really did that on a shoestring budget. So I made negative money on that project because I just I was like I know this needs live strings it it just I will say with Potato there's actually two composers because Potato is really two movies it's like the section that's set in the USSR which was scored by avant-garde composer Joshua Cole Joshua runs this um, ensemble in Seattle called the Degenerate Art Ensemble which I've been a fan of for years and they're actually like doing performance art in Mexico City right now, you know, and so he has a very unique approach. He's not a film composer, he's a concert composer, and, and Wes wanted like a completely different sound in the USSR part of the film to America, and when they hit America, that's when I took over the scoring, um, around the 30-minute mark of the film, and when he was growing up in Russia, he would watch movies like Pretty Woman or Curly Sue or Still Magnolias, and, and that was the score... He wanted that kind of score, 90s, strings, woodwinds, melody forward, just, you know, like a composer's dream to compose. I didn't quite believe him when he told me he wanted that score. So I ended up, he actually didn't temp the film at all. Mm. So I ended up temping parts of Curly Sue and Steel Magnolias into the film just to be like, legitimately, this is what you want. You want the sound. <laughs> and he was like, yes, yes, that's it. Exactly. Except for that portion, which which you saw the the portion about grace and for that he wanted a very different vibe and he sent me samples of that like piano and voice and very like kind of a noir feel to it when he told me all this it was just clear to me that I needed the real thing and I just needed to invest in that invest in the film in in my own score because I knew this film was going to do big things and and as a composer a lot of times especially you know at the 
the first half of our career, I'd say you have to make those calls, which means you make no money initially. You know, you keep the rights to your music, but you know, you make no money on the front end. And it's, it's a business decision. You know, it's about investing in yourself and in your music and believing in the projects that, that you take on. That's a dance that you will be doing your in, entire composing life, I think, especially with the way budgets are going. That's why you shouldn't be in this for the money. <laughs> you should be in it for the music, you know, because, it, I mean, every time I go into the studio, I just I just want to, to go back in. You know, I just want to live there. And, you know, I think life and especially pandemics teach you what's important in life. And for me, what's important is, is working with live musicians as much as possible. Um, also, like keeping their industry alive, their job alive. I don't. I don't want my musicians re- replaced with samples. I, I'm grateful for samples, and I'm grateful that I can mock things up and and explore things with something somewhat close to reality. But there's nothing, nothing like working with the real thing. And so, always finding a way. The musicians I work with know that whenever I have a budget, like they will be getting some of that budget. And so when I have situations where I have less budget, they invest in me, you know. And so it's like creating this community where you're investing in each other and you're being fair to each other. But, you you know, you also do each other a, a solid when when the project calls for it. You know, that's a big part of what I'm trying to do is create community and, and create ways in which we help each other build a sustainable existence within this industry. That's got to be such a difficult position to be in. Yeah. In one sense, there is a big upside to sample libraries, and especially, you know, it's like especially in the pandemic or for younger composers who, you know, are just starting out and like they're just experimenting and finding their sound and being able to work in tighter budgets. But on the other side, like I would imagine at least that that just further puts the squeeze on budgets. It's like when you know, as as electronic instruments were more prevalent, studios and productions are able to say, oh well. A composer can actually do a lot of the same things on a tighter budget, so let's give them less. Yeah. I mean, I think it, a big part of this is educating the studios and educating the money makers. I get the suits in every session I possibly can because mm-hmm. I want them to experience what it's like to record with live instruments. I want, I want them to hear the mock-up and then hear the real thing. You know, a huge part of our job as composers is, is education. It's education to the suits and the money makers. It's education to the filmmakers about the scoring process and about the recording process, and, you know, about the time and the skill that goes into it. I remember I did a Netflix project and we had the suits come on down and, and watch some of the session. And then we had them, then we all had lunch together um, on the break and they sat with the musicians and it, they were just so excited about live music after that. It's frustrating and you can get angry about it, but coming to it from a point of, of education and like people don't know what they don't know. You know what I mean? Right. So it's, it's up to us to be like, there's a reason why this this is a good idea. And, um, you know, one project we did, I was score producing it for um, for Drum and Lace and, and Ian Hopquist, mm-hmm. who you've had on your pod- podcast. And it was their documentary, At the Heart of Gold. And one of these execs came with their kid and their kid was like glued to the glass in the booth, you know, like it's the best experience. Like let's train them young. You know, I feel like everything in this world is a pendulum, you know, like politics, definitely a pendulum. And I feel like budgets is a pendulum too. 
we've seen it go back and forth if you look through the history of Hollywood between big budgets and small budgets. And I feel like we're actually in a pretty exciting place right now. I'm, I am seeing a lot of projects get excited about live score. And we, we now have concerts of scores that tour the world of video game scores or movie scores, you know, and that's a really positive place to be in, you know, like people can go and see a film they love with the score played by the orchestra in that town. You know, I saw The Matrix performed by the Seattle Symphony Orchestra, and it was one of the best experiences of my life. And the the house was packed, you know, by people <laughs> of all kinds and wearing all different kinds of things. You know, you, you have your your old people and your young people and everyone in between. And, and so I feel like there's definitely evidence that would make you despair, but there's plenty of evidence that gives you hope too as, as to the, the future of, of live music. And I would encourage younger composers to be experiencing with, with audio like at the very beginning of your career. I, I think samples can, can sometimes make us lazy composers where we just spend all our time in MIDI and not be working with audio and it's, it's so important to record yourself and record your friends and and understand the recording process understand the process of working with with a musician i was i was um doing a class with with a, a film scoring class at a university i'm gonna i'm gonna leave all the details specifics <laughs> out of this one but i will say a young man asked this question and i almost like just it was crazy but he's like what do you do when you're recording a musician and they're just not getting it right? Like, how do you not, not like lose your cool with them and just like completely blow up at them? And I was like, okay. I was like, well, if you're recording a musician and they're not getting it right, there's a couple of reasons for that and they're all your fault. So either you didn't write something that's playable on that instrument and that is your fault, or you wrote something that's playable, but you didn't notate it in a way that's readable. So they're having, they're struggling to read it and understand what you want. And that's your fault. Or you wrote something that is playable by someone, but you hired someone who doesn't have that skill level to play that thing. And that's your fault. So it's like we, like as composers, our job not only to serve, to serve picture, but it's also to serve the musicians. And, and when they come and work in our music, it's our responsibility to create something that's that's playable, that, that makes sense musically, you know, our job is to set them up for success. And if they're not being successful, you know, we've done something wrong. And that, you know, that's a lesson I learned very early. And well, I think it's a lesson I kind of already knew because I was you know, a musician who had to play music that was put in front of me. Um, a lot of composers who come to this purely through composition and purely through computer work and MIDI work, they don't have that experience. They don't know what it's like to sit in that chair with someone staring at you and play that piece of music. I sweat for my musicians when I'm like, I'm so grateful that I'm never in that room. <laughs> I'm so grateful to be in the booth. Um, Women in the front seat, I did record some, some rhythm guitar. I had recorded it here in my apartment studio and, and it tracked pretty well, but I, you know, I was in the Pet Sound studio in East West, so I wanted to. <laughs> record it again because I knew it would sound better and I was sweating and shaking and I couldn't even get that like final like last clean strum because my <laughs> hand was shaking so much and I was like how do they do it how do they do it it's incredible that they sit down with someone else's music and all that pressure and make it happen so as a composer you need to have boatloads of empathy and you know make sure you do your job so that they can actually 
do theirs. And then the other great, like samples are great. And I, I'm a big fan of samples. I use a ton of Spitfire stuff, especially, but everything. But like, there is so much cool stuff you can do with a piece of audio, like especially if you have like the sound toys package or something like that. And, and it's something that can create a really unique aspect to your sound and being bold and exploratory with that right from the beginning. You can make something super interesting and unique and that sounds totally high class. It sounds big budget because it's so special with very little. So there's there's always options. That's one thing that I could really appreciate about some composers who you know that they're working in the box solely or almost entirely, but you'd never guess it. Yeah. But again, like those are, I'd say in a lot of ways, like few and far between because it's such a skill into itself. Uh, but in one sense, I love that story about that student because I've heard the that exact story from the perspective of the player. Yeah. And they're just like, you get a piece of music and you look at it and you immediately know this is impossible to play. Like, yeah. In one sense, at least it's the student asking that question, not someone who's been right. composing for years being like, oh, you know, I always blow up at my musicians because they can't <laughs> they can't play my music. Right. <laughs> oh, horrifying. Yeah, I could imagine it. A few things that have come up in some of the projects that you've been talking about is not just composing, but also score producing and mm. orchestrating and uh, score supervising. Yeah. And I think those are nuances that I don't think most people are really familiar with or would know what the differences are. So would you mind taking a second to just explain the differences between those three compared to actually just sitting down and writing the score itself? Absolutely. Well, and you know, a lot of composers have to do all of, wear all of those hats themselves. Orchestrating, the term orchestrating, man, it's, you know, it, everyone has like a different definition. I think back in the day, you know, orchestrating was often like you would get like a piano, a piano line or a piano and chords and you would have to make it work. You would voice that out through the entire orchestra. That was your job. These days, you know, orchestrating, what it means is that you get the DAW, the digital audio workstation file from the composer. That composer might be yourself. <laughs> composer self may be sending that file to orchestrator self. Um, and then, you know, you are pulling that out of the, the DAW and putting it into the notation software. I, I work in Sibelius, other people work in Finale or Dorico. Even in that process, you know, people may think that is like lesser now, like less of a job than it used to be back in the day when you were going, you know, from piano to full orchestra. But still, it's a lot of work with, with you know, samples. There's, there's so much you can do. And then often you have to take all of that and reinterpret it for live musicians. And you, there's a lot of decisions you have to make there. Some people work in a, like a brass patch or a woodwind patch. What is Spitfire? Whatever company has created it out of a, an ensemble that usually isn't, isn't specified, or even if it is, you can't really tell who's playing what. And you have to make that decision. Hmm. You know, you have to take the, that notation and voice it out between whoever's being hired. And then a score supervisor or a score producer, you're, you're making the decision with the composer as to what ensemble is being hired, what brass ensemble are we going to have to, what woodwind ensemble. In addition to that, you're doing all the dynamics, all the articulations. 
you're maybe splitting that composition into a number of different passes, right? Like in this pass, we're going to get all the legato notes, and then we're going to do a different pass, and we'll get all the staccato, all the pizzicato, you know, making those kind of decisions about the recording process so that you can smoothly move from recording into mixing and setting your mixer up for success. And then all the while making sure that what's going to be captured with the live ensemble is going to be close enough to the mock-up where the director won't completely freak out when they hear the live because it doesn't sound anything like what they're used to. You know, and another part of that decision-making is also, should we capture this with live? You know, there's some stuff that you do with the patches that's really cool. A lot of you know, sample companies create these different instruments that are manipulated live orchestral moments, timbres, textures, and they've already done that with live players. Like it, it doesn't make any sense to recreate that with your live players. Um, it's, a, it's a waste of time and money. And so you're also making this decision about what should be recorded with live, what should be kept in the box, you know, what needs to be bounced, what needs to be re-recorded. So that decision-making is done by the orchestra and uh, the orchestrator and, you know, the score supervisor is often just overseeing all of that. How's the orchestration going? Has the contractor hired everyone? When is that recording dates? Just making sure that, that all these different jobs that happen in the music team of the composer, that they're all on track, that everyone's communicating with everyone, that you're going to get across the finish line on time. And then a score producer is the person who's running that scoring session. Score producing is something I do for a lot of the composers I collaborate with. We're both producing, they're, they're sitting there, but they let me run the session. You know, I'm usually the person communicating directly with the musicians. I'm communicating the composer's ideas, and I'm chatting with the composer in the booth and then communicating with the musicians. But I, I have a lot of experience running sessions, and so I'm, I'm good at interpreting what the composer wants to the musician, but also I'm good for advocating for the musicians to the composer and to the booth and making sure that things are not being asked of them that are not possible or uncomfortable or not good for them in this hour and maybe we should do it next hour after they have a 10 or something like that. That's really my, my favorite thing to do at this stage if I'm working with another composer. Um, I've done a lot of score supervision and I've done a lot of orchestrating, but for me, I'm at the point where if I'm going to be collaborating with a different composer, I, you know, I want to be with them at the session, like running that session for them. And uh, the rest of the Joy Music House team is handling the orchestrating and the, the score supervision and the copying and, you know, all of that, the printing and taping, <laughs> all the glamorous work of music making in the film industry. So you, you segued this perfectly for me already because those are all hats that you individually wear, but they're all hats that your company, The Joy Music House, also wears. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about what The Joy Music House is and does and why you decided to found it? Absolutely. When, when I first came to L.A., and even when I was still in, in Seattle, Seattle is where I, I made the, the move from musician and composer to, to film composer. And I kind of grew up in the Seattle film community, which is a phenomenal and really just like a really wonderful film community. That's where I met Wes. Um, Potato Dreams of America is a Seattle film. And so even then, you know, I was doing a little bit of copying or even proofreading and just trying to get in the studio and see what, what's going on in there. And I, I worked on a few like Barbie scores 
from Mattel, which had amazing music, like <laughs> Lucky Barbie. Uh, the scores I worked on were, were composed by B.C. Smith, orchestrated by uh, Edgardo Simone, who orchestrates a lot for, um, what's his name? The guy that does all the Tim Burton scores. Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman. Right. <laughs> Sorry, Danny. You're a very important person. I'm just really bad with names. So, you know, that's really when I got the bug. And it's also when I realized what I'd always known is that, you know, like the best thing to do is to be paid to learn. You know, I didn't do a master's in film composition. I did a certificate program with Hummy Man before he started his master's program. But the best education you can always get is by doing yourself and by watching other people do and being like, oh, I want to do it that way. Or I totally don't want to do it that way. Um, and then when I came to LA, I did the same thing, you know, like I was like an older person for my stage in my career. I was already mid thirties, but I told everyone I met through the society of composers and lyricists or wherever, you know, I was like, I'm down for whatever you need someone to taper parts. I'm down. You need someone to orchestrate. I'm down. You need a copyist. I'm down. Um, so I just started working with a lot of composers while also building my own composition career. So there were like two tracks going parallel. And, you know, I had been told, I had been warned by a number of extremely successful composers, oh, you know, be careful about orchestrating or whatever, like you're going to be pigeonholed in that and then no one will hire you for a composer. And that always was a red flag for me because usually the people that told me that had a lot of really big orchestrating credits that, you know, some of them were union and still making the money. And I was just like... This is how you survived when you were younger in your career and yet you're telling me not to do it. I don't get it. And then I was like, also, like, these composers know me as an orchestrator, but my filmmakers know me as a composer. Like, how I'm being portrayed is completely in my control. The gigs I work on, the gigs I tell people about, completely in my control. So I leaned into it and started doing more and more and, like, word of mouth started getting around in the composer community here in L.A. that I was a reliable orchestrator and score supervisor. And as I was getting hired more and more, I needed more people to help me on projects. So I started hiring my composer friends to come and work with me. And it was really becoming a thing, but it was nothing that I ever advertised on my website because I wanted my website just to be me as a composer, really important part of my branding. Like even on social media, you know, I was really selective about telling people about orchestrating gigs. So by the time I got to 2018, I had quite a large team working with me on these projects. And people would ask, like, do you have a website? You know, composers would ask when they wanted to hire me. And also, like, everyone on my team didn't have a lot of visibility because mm-hmm. I was just being hired. And then I would bring on other people, but they weren't they weren't visible. I would get them credits on IMDb or whatever, but they weren't visible to, to everyone. So I started talking to, you know, my other team members, you know, Robinson Hobbs and Joe Carrillo, Hope Thal, you know, I was, said, how about we launch this as a company, a company of composers that support other composers. So it's always composer first. Um, and then I was like, if we give it a different name, that's not my name, then everyone can be visible. We literally just like came up with this in my apartment and came up with the name. Joe came up with Joy Music and Hope and her husband, Caleb, came up with House. You know, we came up with a logo and I talked to all my previous clients and got their approval to, to be put on the roster as current clients of JMH. And we launched it. I did not think much of it at the time. 
I didn't realize I was launching a startup. (laughs) 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 You know, like I, for me, it was just kind of a rebranding. It was really an education in the power of branding. And it's something really for, for everyone to think about because anyone who's a composer or anything in the music or film or creative industry is an entrepreneur and branding is massively important. Having the brand of Joy Music House was incredibly successful. We went basically straight into doing a lot more studio projects, getting notoriety with the studios as being a reliable entity for them to partner their composers with. Our first year, I think Wawa Country had come out before we launched, but that won the Emmy. Um, And then RBG and Love Gilder were also up for the Emmy uh, for Best Score, which we also worked on. Um, And then, of course, this last year, Minari uh, was was nominated for an Oscar, which was also a JMH score production. So it's it's been a really exciting ride. Everyone on the team, they're all phenomenal composers and they have successful composers, you know, who have TV shows and all different kinds of things. And so, you know, it's a new thing. It's It's been a massive learning experience. It's been a great ride. And I think it's also been a real education for people about the fact that composers have have teams and what JMH can essentially be is an instant team for a composer who like, unlike Brian Tyler or Danny Elfman or Bear McCreary or Blake Neely, they all have teams year round who are essentially salaried with them. But JMH can be an instant team for a composer who needs a team for a week or a day, you know, um, and, and work with that kind of budget limitation. It's been a really cool way to kind of educate the larger community about the reality of the music team and the reality that composers rarely work alone. There's always like a whole bunch of other people helping bring that score to life. But I think that's so much the, like the broader outside view is the normal person will think of someone like John Williams or Hans Zimmer and be like, well, they're in their black box creating everything. And then it's just recorded and then released into the world. Yeah. Not realizing that, I mean, like so many other aspects of a film production, for instance, that there are a million other pieces and people involved to make that happen. Like, I do appreciate that it's giving more visibility to all of it and giving more credit to all of the other people involved in the behind the scenes of what's already behind the scenes work. And it's so important for this visibility. It will help with getting more realistic budgets. You know, when you have this kind of glorified image of the sole composer doing their thing by themselves, like this is when the budgets kind of get screwed up because, you know, like if the production company is just hiring a composer, then they have a different view as opposed to a composer who needs an orchestrator and a copyist and a score producer and musicians. And, and so, you know, it's so important to get to this place where we are sharing credit and we are giving a, a true picture of the whole kind of life cycle and work cycle of score production. A lot of problems occur when you have this glorified composer mentality. Um, That's when also a lot of toxic environment, bad behavior can creep into the equation too. You know, when you have the mentality of team, it's easier to have kind of a healthier work environment, you know, a more humble situation. I feel it's more possible. 
I think one thing that I've seen since I've moved to LA, especially, is a lot of just basic abuse of people who have been part of music teams and not recognized and not treated well and not given a path forward in their career. Like they're just used and thrown out. And I hate that. And it's just, it's, it's like this evil side of film scoring that no one, you know, often doesn't talk about and, and needs, needs to go away. I'm part, I'm on a committee um, that, that's run by the Society of Composers and Lyricists. It's an early career composers committee where we're trying to find ways to protect and take care of the younger composer community that are coming up through the ranks and make sure they're no longer put in a situation where they're underpaid and overworked and ignored and not given a path forward. A lot of change needs to happen in that area. And one thing I wanted to do with JMH is prove that you can treat people well, pay people well, give them a situation where they get experience, they do learn by doing and get paid to learn and then can move on and have their own careers. And I wanted to prove to the world that it can happen so no one gets away with doing it the shoddy way. I mean, it almost, it's like almost comical you having to say that to say like, oh, I want to prove that you can like treat people well and pay people right. <laughs> what what they should be paid. It's like, I know you shouldn't have to prove that, like, especially in an industry like in you know, film broadly, there's so much money involved. Yeah. That should just be normal. To not treat people bad and to pay people and to give them credit should already exist. And it's crazy that it doesn't. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. It really is. But when you have that almighty composer view, everything gets distorted. Everything. So it has to go away. <laughs> yeah. I agree. <laughs> that, that era is over. <laughs> and you know what? Good. Good riddance. Yeah, exactly. Um, and look, the I realize now we're... Uh, like somehow already running tight on time. But <laughs> the other thing that I did want to talk about, and it relates to visibility and just things changing over time in positive ways, is your work in the Alliance for Women Film Composers. So can you talk about, quickly I guess, so I don't keep yeah. you all day, <laughs> but can you talk about a, a little about the some of the goals and the steps that that group's taking? Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I've been involved with the Alliance since 2016, um, where I came on. I came on to help with the inaugural concert that we did in downtown LA, and then I was brought on as executive director, and then I was vice president, and now I'm president. So <laughs> it's been quite the journey. It's been a fascinating ride for all of us because, you know, all of us as women composers definitely would just prefer to be known as composers, but it became very clear to the founders, which is Miriam Cutler, Lolita Ritmanis, and Laura Carmen, and Chandler Poling, who's uh, one of the PR guys of White Bear PR, which is a film composer PR company. It became very clear to them that, you know, we had to step up and put together this organization because there were visibility and equality issues that had to be addressed. And it's uncomfortable having these conversations, but at this point in time, it's necessary and after we were around for a few years, the Composer Diversity Collective started as well, which is another great organization of which I'm a member. You can be a member of both of our organizations, even if you're, you know, a white dude. Like with the AWFC, you can be a supporting member. And uh, with, the, with the CDC, you can be, I believe it's called a sponsoring member. The Alliance, we were very specific with the naming that it's for and not of. It's not, it's not a, a club of women composers it's an organization that's that's a group of people together for the ampli amplification and advocacy for women film composers 
And it's been exciting. You know, we have over 500 members. Um, it's exciting this year that there's, you know, a number of women nominated for Emmys. Lolita was shortlisted um, on the Oscar nominations this year, too, which, you know, is a good step forward. We still have a lot of work to do in that area. And it's not just about awards. It's just it's about people working. And, it, and it's great nowadays that there's, you know, there is a lot of women scoring TV shows and movies but it's still like it's just is a journey you know and I think the goal for me as president is just to continue to normalize the presence of of women film composers and to encourage directors and production companies and studios to normalize the fact that when they have people pitching on a show that half of the people that are pitching for the score are women for me, it's not like you must hire women. It's, it's you must give women a seat at the table and an opportunity to pitch. And then you choose who's best for the project. I get it. Making sure the women composers have an equal opportunity to have their music be heard and have those opportunities. It's so important. And it's just, it's fascinating to me because it, it, it's still astounding to me that so many filmmakers are not aware of the existence of women composers. And I, I still see it all the time. I've, I've just been working on this project with one studio and the, the filmmakers are women. And there was a women composer on this project, which was great, but I was talking to the filmmakers after the dub and they were like, oh, it's so good to meet you because we struggle to find women film composers. And I'm just like, how? How do you struggle? We have like a whole directory of them. You know, like you, like there's constant Twitter feeds where it's like, where are my women composers at? And then it's just like a million responses of amazing women composers. So I, it's just a reminder to me constantly that we still have work to do, you know, just to make it normal to see them in places where you're looking for them. And it's challenging because at the end of the day, a lot of hiring still happens by word of mouth, by knowing people. So it, it's tricky because I feel like there's just so many places where you need to make sure you're present. And it's just like, hi, we're here. It has to happen on the studio level, but it has to happen on the grassroots level. It has to happen in the schools, you know, in the high schools, in the in the primary schools, in the, in the colleges, in the universities. You know, there's so much work to be done and there's still a lot of work to be done to let young women know that this is an option for you. And my story is fascinating because, you know, from a very young age, I knew musically the path I was on was not going to fit. My mom was a concert pianist. You know, I was being trained as a violinist and a classical singer. I knew that was not my path. Like, I just, I was a square peg in a round hole, uh, you know, surrounded by amazing young concert musicians. And I knew that was not my path forward and it took me such a long time to figure out that composing was it and I realized that when I look back on my youth you know I I went to a girl's school where we were you know it's it a rich kid school where I got a bunch of scholarships to go there and it was all about women leadership like there was no you know it was all about as a woman you could do anything but when we studied composers, it was all dudes. Like when I looked around, there was no women composers or women conductors. It wasn't on the job list in the music world. And I knew women could be in the world of music, but that composer job wasn't on the list. <laughs> and when I finally found it on the list, you know, like a long time later in Seattle, I was like, oh, this is where I fit. You know, if I had, we'd studied women composers in, in school, in primary and high school, I think I would have figured it out a lot earlier, but the modeling 
wasn't there. The examples weren't there in my local orchestra. There's a lot of ground to cover and there's a lot of work to do, but it's exciting. And, I, and I'm so, so grateful for, you know, all the people in our organization, especially the dudes. It takes everyone to fix these issues of representation, not just the people that are being affected by it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, it is heartening that you can see progress made even just in the last few years. But at the same time, like that story and when I talk with Drum and Lace, like Sophie and I talked about some similar issues too. And, and she had something where she didn't even know that there were women film composers and women TV composers until yeah. she was like studying and came upon them. And then hearing yeah. that story of that production team being like, oh, we didn't even know, like we couldn't find women composers. It's like, ah, that's crazy. It's yeah, crazy. It's wild. Because like, it's look, I'll, I'll say like my first season, I... I don't know. I interviewed like 20, 22 composers and there were four women. Yeah. When I finished that, I was like, that's a problem. But you know how long it took me to find a bunch of women composers to talk to? Like 30 seconds because yeah. I know that you're all out there. Like it's not hard to find. Yeah. But I don't know. I think I think that's where you get to the difference of people talking about an issue. But in one sense, like finding about women film composers is not difficult. If you really want to find them, it doesn't take that long to realize like, well, there's a ton of you working right now and there are quite a few historically as well, but you actually have to do that work. Yeah, exactly. It's frustrating that people still aren't necessarily doing it, but it's at least, I don't know, makes me more optimistic that, for instance, the Alliance exists to say, you know what, if you're not going to do the work, we're going to do all the groundwork for you. So you can just come yeah. on our site, look at the director and be like, oh, okay, there's a, just a shitload. And if you really want to like get women at the table, it's not that hard. Exactly. And I think it's, I think we are, we, we are getting close to the stage where people will find women composers in their community or who have worked on someone they know, you know, it's just, we really want to get to that to that stage where people are naturally finding women composers in their community who have worked on previous projects. And it just, you know, it takes, a lot of this stuff takes time too. And it's, you know, we originally, when we first started the Alliance, we're like, we hope we won't have to exist in 10 years. And now we're realizing that's not possible. You know, we need to stick around for a while because change, real change takes time and we just got to hang in there. And yeah. in the meantime, just be, you know, an active part of our wonderful composer community and, and supporting all the, the great young women who are, who are coming up through the ranks and, and becoming that next generation of composers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on that note, it's like perfect way to end the conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a great chat. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you were able to join me. I, I appreciate it. And I told you before in emails that I'd heard so many great things and had, uh, had some of my composer friends telling me I had to talk to you. So I'm glad we were finally <laughs> able to, to get it scheduled and get it done. Yeah, absolutely.